So joining us today, uh, we have Melanie Tresik King, who's from the US. Uh, hello, Melanie. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> and uh, Melanie, you are going to be joining us in November for the New Zealand Skeptics Conference. I am. So, so where are you based at the moment? I'm outside of Boston. Okay, right. Um, and so I understand that you teach at a community college. I do. I do. Um, I technically, in, in all um, uh, openness, I am on a year leave of absence at the moment to write a book and work on thinking as power. Um, but yes, I have been teaching at a community college. Right. So you're thinking as power. That's uh, the website that I've been perusing and, and I'm impressed. There's a lovely amount of content on there. Um, oh. And it's all very nicely arranged. That would be my obsessive need to organize everything. It <laughs> makes the most sense. Yeah. So, so, um, so how did how did you get into this approach to teaching science? Uh, okay, so this gets to the point where you're asking a question that I absolutely love, and you're just going to have to stop me at some point. So when you get cool. bored, give me a sign. Okay. So my background, actually, I'm from the Midwestern part of the United States, and uh, historically that's been prairie. I went to undergraduate um, biology and chemistry, and then I got my um, graduate degree in ecology, and it was on um, succession of prairies to forests and fires, and it was super fun. And then my husband got a job across the other side of the country. So I followed him, but there's not a lot of prairies here, so I started teaching <laughs> at a community college. I don't know if you have a system in New Zealand, actually. So it's it's like two-year schools. College in the United States is really expensive. And so um, there's a system of public colleges and universities, but then there's two-year um, like junior colleges. And what they are is a place either for students who can't afford to go to a four-year right away, or maybe students in like um, technology programs or job training programs, um, or people going back to school. So um, I was teaching everybody that is not that gets a, a four-year degree in the United States has to take science as an undergrad. And um, they almost always hate it. And I know this from experience. So the course they usually take is intro bio. And um, being a biologist, I absolutely love this course, but I realized it was the last chance to teach students about science. And I was wasting their time having them memorize like the stages of mitosis and protein synthesis and cellular respiration. And again, with as amazing as those things are, they can look all that stuff up, right? If they need it, they can look it up. The better question is, do they know what science is? Do they know how science learns as opposed to what it knows? Science changes all the time. Do people know that? During the pandemic, we saw science in real time and we saw a new virus and a new vaccine. Do we wear masks? What masks are most effective? In what situations? Like all of these things that were playing out and people um, didn't know who to trust. And so um, what I was envisioning, not, to be fair, I was doing this before the pandemic, but the pandemic really laid it bare. The need to teach students science as a way of knowing as opposed to what it knows. And so um, I dove into that process. I created a course to replace intro bio. I call it science for life and thinking is power um, came out of that. Sometimes I was just like wanting to write things for my students. And other times it was, well, I'm just curious if people are interested in learning about science. And it turns out they are, which makes me super happy. Um, and it's sort of grown from there. 
That's really interesting. Um, so I, I guess here in New Zealand, we have, um, we, we I guess we, we used to have what would be called community colleges. Um, we have the traditional universities. We also have the, the polytechnic system, uh, which tends to be, uh, at least at least sort of when I grew up, tend to be sort of the focus of vocational training and so on. I know when I uh, went to university, I got a degree in information systems, which is kind of like computer science in business. And so um, I, I was always interested in science at school, but never did any science beyond high school. Um, but I guess um, what what got me interested in in science and skepticism was when I encountered a, a colleague who was a young earth creationist and uh, I just <laughs> couldn't couldn't believe that uh, that he, he could he could believe that and uh, yeah so um, I think science courses the, the, the sort of stuff that you're talking about is incredibly valuable um, for uh, for students well beyond the sciences. Did you have any trouble convincing the community college to allow you to run that course, or is it completely up to you as to what you choose to teach? Um, a little bit of both. They actually um, were really supportive of what I was doing. Um, and I know that other educators across the country have not had that same kind of feedback. Um, actually, they faced a lot of obstacles in many cases. Uh, I went to the department and I said, I want to start a conversation about why we teach non-major science and then do our courses meet those objectives. And to their credit, um, we went through several courses and took them off the books, including intro bio. And to replace it then, um, I said, I want to develop a course. And the entire premise of the course is this skills, not facts approach. So just really briefly that I, I um, my trilogy of skills is critical thinking, information literacy and science literacy. Um, and there's a specific order to it and the order turns out to matter. But um, the point was I wanted to focus all on those skills as opposed to having students memorize stuff. So I use a lot of pseudoscience in class and it's really difficult to teach students to be able to evaluate good information if they're not taught what bad information looks like and the techniques used by bad information. Um, so, you know, we use Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and psychics and ghosts. And, um, you know, I actually teach them like how to cold read like a psychic. Um, I teach them how to make conspiracy theories. I teach them how to design pseudoscience products. I teach them how to argue illogically. Doing so helps them learn the techniques of misinformation because then when they go out into the real world, they can actually evaluate information good, bad, see the characteristics of them, and then hopefully not fall for them. So I saw on your website, I came across the the cranky uncle game, uh, which which I just started, I hadn't, hadn't come across it before, and I started playing it this morning, and it's very, very good. You want to sort of tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's actually by John Cook, um, who's an Aussie. Um, he lives in Melbourne. And um, cranky uncle... <laughs> Like at least as an American, but it turns out this is a global thing. We all know who that is, right? <laughs> like in the States, he's the guy at Thanksgiving that you really don't want to talk to. Cranky Uncle is a science denier. In particular, he's a climate change denier. And in the game, it's a cartoon-based game. It uses humor to teach you the techniques of science denial. So those techniques, um, originally by the Hoofnagel brothers, but um, uh, John Cook has organized them into an acronym uh, called FLIC. So fake experts logical fallacies, impossible expectations, cherry picking, and conspiracy theories. So Cranky Uncle uses those techniques to deny climate change. And you recognize those techniques and you piss Cranky Uncle off and then you level up and open up new techniques. 
And it's a brilliant game. My students have been playing that game for years. Um, actually, they were part of the beta testing. And I've designed an assignment based on it. So um, it's in the teacher's guide. And John and I have been part of a, a team to co-author a paper on humor in science education. Um, and in the assignment, so I have the students play the game. And they learn these techniques. And a lot of the techniques are logical fallacies. So then I have them pretend it's the end of the semester. And they're failing the class because they didn't do the work. Like, let, let's be clear you deserve to fail. You need to argue for why you should pass the course using logical fallacies from class. So the students, it's actually really amazing. Um, lots of grandmas die and dogs um, because they're appealing to emotions, right? And you know, my mom and dad say, or my English professor say I should pass. So they appeal to authority. They love attacking my character. <laughs> so like, you're just an awful professor and you hate students and you're blah, blah, right? Oh, there are homeless people. Like, why do you care about my grade so much? There's literally homeless people, right? So there's a nice red herring. Oh, and if I fail this class, I'm going to not be able to get into medical school. And then I'm gonna be living in a tent on a street and people are gonna die. They're literally gonna die because I passed. So, I mean, it's really fun. <laughs> right. So then they post it on a forum, a uh, discussion forum, and they find the fallacies in each other's um, arguments. The point is, like, they've learned fallacies all through humor, right, through Cranky Uncle and then the assignment. And um, they actually created that misinformation based on those fallacies. And so then they learn them in a much better way than just me explaining them. So you've already answered one of my questions that I had prepared, which is how well do you find that logical fallacies work for teaching critical thinking? And it sounds like they are something that captures people's attention and they're, they're fun. And it's great when you know what they are and you can detect them. It's really nice to watch an argument and pull it apart. So I'm going to have to move on to my next question, which um, having looked through your Thinking is Power website, th there is some mention of skepticism, um, but where I found it mentioned in one place it said it gets a bad rap most of the places i'm seeing other words being used i'm seeing science and critical thinking and pseudoscience and alternative medicine there really isn't much of a mention of skepticism is this deliberate um that you're not using because all of it to me looks like skepticism all of it looks like god oh, this is this is exactly what we do as skeptics but i'm not seeing that word being plastered around too much so was that a deliberate choice slowly I might have to disagree with your premise. Oh. Skepticism <laughs> is throughout. So I am very clear. Um, it's in, oh my goodness. See, now I feel like I should go through the posts and see. <laughs> so foundations, yeah. it's one of the parts. Let me just click on the link here. So I think it's maybe part four on the foundations. Uh, part two of the foundations is skepticism, but that's alongside believing and knowing and don't trust yourself and good thinking and information literacy and science and science's pretenders. So it's kind of one of seven sections in the foundations course. Ah, okay. So I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, in that, so when I teach the class, I start with, with believing and knowing, and then I move on to, when I say skepticism, I give them a toolkit for evaluating claims, and that would be the floater toolkit. And um, the foundation of that is skepticism. So um, then there's different sections, but I think you'll find if you go through, so like, for example, on fact-checking, like if you go to the fact-checking article, yeah, the very part of fact-checking is be skeptical. Right. Okay. So it is mentioned more so, than I've seen then. I do use it a lot, um, but I still do think that it has a bad rap. Let me tell you a slight little mm -hmm. story here. 
in the fall, I went to Saigon for my first time ever. Um, and it was wonderful and fun. And it was in Vegas, which is giant. And there's all kinds of amazing things going on when I say amazing. They're not always good. This isn't a value judgment, right? So there's lots going on. And um, I snuck off to the pool and um, ran into a couple of scientists there from NASA. And they were at another conference. And so we just got talking. It's like, oh, what are you here for? And I told them that I was there for it. And they're like, you could see their face. And they go, skepticism? And then, is that like flat earth? And it broke my heart that like NASA mm -hmm. scientists didn't even understand what skepticism is. The other side is I talk to science educators. And they think skepticism is denial. Or they think it's atheism. And so some of them are afraid to teach it because there's such a, like, um, especially in these areas where there might be that pushback, it comes from teaching of evolutionary theory. And so there just seems to be like, oh, and denialists really like to claim the word as their own. Um, so to me, when I say it gets a bad rap, it's because from all different sides, it seems to have a misunderstanding of what it is. So part of what I'd really like the, the skepticism community to just say like together, and I'm a newbie here, so maybe they've been doing it forever, but it's, you know, skepticism isn't just like debunking things and it's not cynicism and it's it's really just good thinking, right? It's demanding evidence before you accept a claim and accepting the claim proportional to the evidence provided. It's just good evidence-based thinking. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I say it has a bad rap. Yeah, and I, I think certainly over here we've had discussions which have been a mixture of how do we make skepticism not a dirty word and how do we change our name to let people know what we're talking about? So, you know, could, should we call ourselves the scientific skepticism movement or something like that? How do we make it so it, it, people don't suddenly think denial when they hear the word? And it's certainly an unsolved problem by the look of things. Yeah, if you figure it out, will you let us know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the aim of our conference. So uh, well, we'll have it all figured there. out in November. And I'll take it back to the States and be like, the, the Kiwis solved it. Let me tell you. So, Melanie, I just want to ask, you know, a little bit about your background. Um, you know, coming from I come from the East Coast of Canada. You're coming from the West Coast of America. Um, did you come from a skeptical family background, like with scientists and doctors? Or was your skepticism something that you sort of had to fight through or fight for? That's a really good question. So um, I actually grew up in this little town in Iowa. Um, I graduated at 39 and it was half my county. And um, the church was basically the only thing that was there. And the church was young earth creationists um, and like women should serve men the rest of their lives, that kind of thing. And I went to undergrad to be a vet. And so I was taking, you know, I was a biology major, but actually I remember, um, I remember sitting in World Civ One and the professor talking about the different kinds of gods in the ancient civilizations and how their gods that they're created were correlated with their environmental conditions. And she, she starts going off into this. And I just remember sitting in my seat like, holy crap, that makes so much more sense. And so, I mean, I say that because a lot of people assume that it was my science background that pushed me away from the fundamentalism, but it, it actually really wasn't. And I, I think I was primed to leave more because of how sexist and misogynistic the church was. But that said, I didn't find the skeptic community until the last couple of years. Like, literally, I think it was 2020. I, I literally didn't know you all were there. And I didn't know you were missing from my life until I found you, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think certainly for a lot of people, when they find skepticism, it feels like home. And for us here in New Zealand, running the skeptics in the pub um, events that we do, we we do get people walk through the door where they can suddenly decompress and relax. It's like, ah, this is a group of people where I don't have to constantly argue things because people are getting it wrong. You you understand evidence, you understand how much craziness there is out in the world. And, you know, people can just be free to talk how they want to talk and have their beliefs challenged without worrying too much about anything. You know, I want to say something, but I'm pretty sure what the reaction is going to be. And I'm so sorry for saying this, but I have literally never been to a skeptics in the pub event. <laughs> and I Okay, I'm glad I, 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 I don't. I don't. I don't know if that's going to be so strange. I mean, if you only come to sort of um, the skeptics in the past couple of years, um, the skeptics in the pub necessarily as widespread as it was maybe ten or so years ago. Don't know. Probably the pandemic probably um, stabbed it a few times as well, so it might not be as thriving as it used to be. Well, that's going to be my excuse because I found I found skepticism in the pandemic and then the pandemic. But I do know I need to get to one because they sound like a riot. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, is your one in Auckland not a riot? Is yours really boring? Is it just like old men sitting around? Oh, it's it's never boring. But but I know I know that they have that there have been some issues with a bunch of skeptics getting together and um, perhaps uh, many. I guess one of the uh, bad reputations that skeptics have is it's a bunch of old white men. Um, who are arguing around things, and we like to be more diverse than that. And I guess people who are under underrepresented in our community have had a bad time, um, and so we definitely try to work against that. But that that I think that doesn't necessarily happen everywhere. And we we do have fun as well, where the deniers do turn up. So I think you've had a climate denier maybe turning up recently at your Auckland event, Craig. Uh, yes, yes, we've had, well, we've had all sorts. <laughs> yeah, and, we've had, a, I guess. Sorry, we've, we've had a moon landing in- denier turn up in Wellington. And um, we had someone last year come and tell us that they'd figured out the cure to cancer, which was a fun conversation. We're always polite and kind, but try and kind of walk them through what skepticism is and why maybe their claim that they've done what thousands of scientists haven't is l- unlikely to be true. Yeah, we've certainly encountered our fair share of cranks. And the the downside to cranks is they seem to have a lot of free time in order to put into their theories. And it's very difficult to sort of try and comprehend what they're claiming before you can even start to say why this is wrong. Sorry, I haven't been any skeptics in the pub, but I'm pretty sure those people have found my Facebook site. <laughs> So looking through the sections again, I'm, I'm not going to make another truth claim about what is or isn't on your website, but I'm going to ask a question this time so that I, I'm not proven wrong. Um, you, you talk about alternative medicine and pseudoscience, and one of your foundation parts is science's pretenders, people who are pretending to be sciencey but aren't. Do you anywhere on this site tackle religion? Um, and, and if so or not, what? What made you make that decision to go there or not go there? Um, I think the closest I get, so it depends on what you mean by religion, I suppose. If we're taking the claim very broadly, um, I have John from on there. Um, I have. Um, I know from the oh, bits I, I read, I, I did see some reference to young earth creationist claims about how there was a flood 4,000 years ago. 
Yeah, I do. So um, I learned a teaching science a long time ago that I want students to think well and to get them to do that, not triggering them is the best way. So um, I often like start class, if I just back up again, not just religion, I start class with like witchcraft and ghosts and UFOs. Well, you're in the right area for it. Right. Right. So, but I, I, I start there because most of my students don't believe in witchcraft, right? So they can learn to evaluate um, why people would think they would have good evidence for witchcraft when they so clearly don't from somebody else's perspective, right? Now, the goal is to get them to question that and their own, their own beliefs. But if they can start by not being triggered and look at somebody else's, if I started, for example, with like climate change or vaccines or um, evolution, then there's going to be segments of the population that just tune me out. And I don't want to miss that opportunity. So I start with non-triggering things. And then when it comes specifically to religious claims, I'm always very clear, like I am with any other thing. Like, did I just disprove ghosts? No, because I can't do that. But we have evaluated the evidence for that. And here's the conclusions we can draw based on the evidence. The reality is very likely it's not true. Could it be? Sure, right? We could be in the matrix. So then I basically use that approach for all of that. When we get to something like um, creationism, I mean, I, I can't disprove a creator. It's not falsifiable. I can disprove some of the claims made by creationists. So what I do instead is even just start with a concept of falsifiability. Let me give you an example of the approach that I take here. Um, and I apologize for the sophomoric humor, but it just kind of is who I is. And I, I know my audience, right? So this is a true story. Um, you know, Thagoras, like Thagorean theorem, right? Thagoras um, was part of a, a group that believed that when you farted, your soul escaped your body. So he wouldn't eat beans or other foods that he thought gave him gas. So when I teach falsifiability to students, I'll start with that and I'll say, hey, fun story. Okay. And then they laugh. I'm like, okay, test it. Okay. <laughs> so then they start talking about it, right? And they're laughing like, <laughs> like I burp. Do I lose part of my soul when I burp too? Right. You know, and then they laugh a bit more and like, wait a minute, dogs fart. Do dogs have souls too? Hmm. Right. So moving on and it's like, well, what's a soul? How do you measure a soul? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> right? So again, could the claim be true? Could you lose your soul when you fart? Sure. I suppose it's possible. But there's no way to test that claim. So it's not an evidence-based claim. Just make sure in your head you put it there as opposed to something I can support with evidence. Hmm. That was a long-winded way of answering your question. Hopefully it did. Yeah. Uh, so I do like your floater acronym. Um, so how long ago did you come up with that? I guess we should uh, um, sort of briefly explain what it is, but you've got an acronym that has a whole <laughs> bunch of things. So it starts with F, the falsifiability. And yes. So the impetus of that, I was using actually from Skeptical Inquirer, I think it was from 1990, um, a man named James Lett had a toolkit, um, like he called it the Skeptics Toolbox, and it was um, his acronym was Filters. And I was using that actually for a couple of years. And look, my students weren't even alive when 9-11 happened, right? So 1990 is like ancient history. And the kinds of things the skeptic community was dealing with at the time aren't really relevant for today. There's been a lot of changes. And so I contacted Let, um, Dr. Let, and I said, you know, are you interested in updating the toolkit? And he's like, no, but you do that. So great. 
And so I contacted Ken Frazier at the time and I said, you know, Dr. Lett has given me permission. Um, am I okay with this? And he said, go for it. Um, the hardest part was to pick out the letters for the acronym and then put it into a word. So it stands for um, falsifiability, logical fallacies, objectivity, alternative explanations, tentative conclusions, evidence, and reproducibility. So what I do, I call it my skeptics toolkit um, in class, it's floater, like it's your um, flotation device to save you from misinformation. You don't want to drown in a sea of misinformation. So I present that to my students early in the semester um, as here's your skeptic toolkit. And then during the rest of the semester, we build on different aspects of it and get students to practice um, evaluating claims. And obviously, they also see the humor in it that the floater is also an unflushable piece of excrement. <laughs> you know, a good acronym is memorable. I don't care how you remember it, remember it but you remembered it. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, I have a quick question. Um, you know, the business of being a science educator is, I think, something that's kind of come, come up for us recently because uh, we have the documentary about Susie Wiles that's just been traveling with our New Zealand International Film Festival. And a big part of this misinformation documentary is how much free work Susie has done over the course of the pandemic. How are you finding that? Um, is, has, is, is it actually a transition from going from being a, you know, a university professor to a public educator, um, or how are you managing that sort of business side of things? What's that like? Um, I have no idea what that documentary is, but I feel like I need to see it. Oh, you definitely do. Okay. Um, yeah, the university position is much more stable. All of the work that I do on Facebook and social media and all of the work on my website, I mean, I, I do out of my own time and I pay for a lot of the resources myself. Right. Interestingly, in my process of debunking misinformation and trying to save people from the charlatans that are trying to steal their money, I get called a shill. And mm. I keep waiting for that check because it's just not there. We all are um, skeptic unless someone's accusing you of being big pharma. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, it is really hard to do. You, you basically put little pieces together to try to make something out of it. But, you know, um, publicly, like who's who's paying for it? We all expect media these days. So you've got a, a shop on your website, and I like some of the T-shirts there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I name them after my friends and people who've inspired them. Um, my husband has one. His is the, um, does that make sense? But he says it in a way that has a lot of attitude that I can't I can't get by with. You Do you know Kenny Biddle? He's the uh, center for... He's paranormal investigator. Susan Gerbeck has mentioned him to me many times, and I've I've yet to look him up. But yes, I I I am aware of his name at least. He's brilliant. He's brilliant, and actually, his shirt is that. I hope it's a ghost this time because he's a skeptic, ah. and every time he goes on a ghost hunt, he's hoping it's a ghost, and it's just never a ghost, you know. But yeah, that was you know trying to get my name out there and and so on. Uh, by the way, it was the first few T-shirts that I realized that I was actually paying people to take my T-shirts. You gotta learn the stuff as you go, right? <laughs> Indeed, and um, and t-shirts are, are notoriously expensive to get here to New Zealand. So, wow. um, if we were to put in some special little orders with you, would you bring them with us? With you? I think I would manage that. Okay, okay, I might have to pick one out. You pick it out. Um, the Melanie is um, the be curious, be skeptical, be humble. Right. It's my favorite, as you can tell. 
I think that, that uh, so, humility is an interesting one. I, I think often when I'm talking with people who have weird beliefs, it's obvious that they're coming from a place of arrogance. And I, I worry sometimes that our skeptics can also come across as arrogant, but there's a confidence to people with bad beliefs that I, I haven't yet worked out how to tackle. Do you have any suggestions on, on how you handle that, kind of bringing them down from a position of absolute knowledge? So... Do you know Daniel Kahneman, the um, economist? Thinking fast and slow? Yes. So he was asked once if he had a magic wand to rid the world of one bias, what would it be? And he said overconfidence. And it's Mm. because exactly what you say, like it is really hard to break. The only way I have found to break it, or I say the best way, I have students, when they think about their beliefs, again, I start with things that aren't triggering. So in my class, I often joke that I have my students captive for four months, right? But you don't have like people in the wild captive. for So they come in at different places. But if you get a chance to talk to them about their beliefs and ask them to put their confidence in their belief on a spectrum from like zero to 100%, but, you know, try to avoid zero and 100%, because right, we can never be completely sure one way or the other. So then they put themselves on there and then ask them, why they weren't more confident. So don't ask them why they might be wrong. Ask them why they're not totally sure they're right. Because what they're going to do is generate their own reasons for why they might be wrong. I could tell them why I think they might be wrong, but I can't change their mind. They have to do that for themselves. So getting them to come up with those reasons themselves, and it's probably not going to be an instantaneous thing. Even if you just plant a seed and it goes with them, that's still something positive as an outcome. That is an interesting technique. Um, it reminds me of the street epistemology approach, mm-hmm. which I think has its pros and its cons, but that is sort of centered around asking people about their beliefs and how confident they are in those beliefs. It seems to have been used to attack people's religious beliefs most often, which may not be, as you say, the right way to approach things. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good uh, a good technique to say. Yeah, what, what would make you more confident? Why why aren't you more confident? Yeah. But I, I, I think with religious beliefs, sorry, with religious beliefs, I think this is one of the places where it can fall down because what I've seen in the past is people where when they have a religious belief because they need to show that they absolutely believe, they will put that number at 100%. It's like my faith yes. is unshakable. Nothing can change it. This is how much I love my God that it is 100%. And I, yeah, sometimes like I find that one really hard to deal with. Yeah, um, I often joke that my audience is the normals. So like on a bell curve, people over here don't need me and people over here, I'm with my abilities and time, I'm not going to reach them. So I go after those that are more gettable with my time and resources. But yeah, I totally understand. Anthony Magnabosco's approach, by the way, with street epistemology is brilliant. Um, and um, I might also recommend um, David McRaney's latest book, um, How Minds Change. He, he covers the street epistemology approach in there along with a couple of others. One of the things that Anthony does with his approach is it's not adversarial. Like he purposefully approaches these conversations as a reasoning together, which is what a good conversation should be, right? And this is, it's just basic Socratic questioning, but in a a non-adversarial format. I mean, not that the Socratic approach was inherently adversarial, but it could be, right? But this is more like, you know, I'm actually just curious with you. Like if you're interested in exploring your reasoning together, why why don't we work together on this? 
And one of the things that I find in there that that I think is really important, but very difficult to do, is to try to remind people that they're not their beliefs. Like we have this, like, this tendency to identify with our beliefs, right? And when we are a belief, if that belief is threatened in any way, we feel uh, threatened. And so we defend the belief because it becomes more important to be right than to lose face. And actually, this happens with our our, our tribe as well. We want our tribe to maintain good standing, and we want to maintain good standing within the tribe. And so tribe can literally become more important than truth. So trying to get people to detach themselves from their belief. Um, one of the fun things, um, exercises I do with my students is um, I'll ask them, like, um, how many species of elephant are there? Does anyone mm-hmm. know? <laughs> I would um, guess three. I would guess two. Bronwyn. Are we talking extent? 20? <laughs> this might get out of jail free card. Oh. Okay. So all of you, how confident are you? Oh, not confident at all. <laughs> no, not very confident. About like 50%. zero to a hundred, you can, you can put yourself on there someplace. Oh yeah. Like I'm a 10. Percent. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I, I, I would put myself at 50%. Oh, yeah, no, 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 10, 10% or so, maybe even less, because even just you asking that question makes me start to doubt that I do know the answer. Mm. Like, you know, I, I feel like I know it until someone asks. It's like, oh, why are you asking that? Maybe it's not <laughs> the obvious answer. Maybe it is something else. Okay, and how would you all feel if you were wrong? Fine. Yeah, I wouldn't care. I, I'm not a biologist. <laughs> I, yeah, not wedded to that at all. Right, so here's the thing. Imagine, okay, if you're my class now, imagine caring that little about whether you're right or you're wrong about anything else. Okay, so I can tell you that the current answer is three. It used to be two. Now we divide the African elephant into two. Um, the Asian elephant has, though, like, I think seven subspecies currently. Um, and like the African elephant, both species have uh, uh, pygmy variants. It's complicated. But also, do you care that you're wrong? No. <laughs> No, but I'm happy I was right. <laughs> I think you were right by accident. I think I don't think you knew. I think you just guessed. So now Maybe. let's talk about scenes. Ooh, <laughs> nice switch. Sorry, what are we talking about? <laughs> I was all right, joking. Craig. Craig doesn't need Maybe convincing on vaccines. I, I think he's all good. Oh, vaccines, right. But I, you got I the heard, point. You yeah, I heard scenes. Yeah, I didn't hear the vaccines part. Right, okay. Okay, so that's a nice... I mean, that's something I've tried to be... Uh, tried to do with my children as I'm bringing them up is is just talk to them about how, you know, their beliefs and their feelings and everything, it, it, it's not something they're wedded to. They they can change these things. You know, and, uh, to an extent for me, it's an inoculation. You know, I understand that one or more of my children might end up joining a church at some point. They might fall in love with someone who's in a church and they end up going into that. I mean, that happened to me when I was a young teenager. So it's quite possible it's going to happen. But I want them to know that once they end up in a group like that, that this is not not forever however much a church might tell you that once you've made the decision you can't go back it's a lie you can always change your mind there's no shame in realizing you were wrong in walking away from something and i think that's kind of really important to get in there early but if not i'm guessing like that exercise of telling us about something that we don't feel really connected to is probably a good one but i imagine it takes more than that to get someone to realize that all of their beliefs it's okay if they change yeah um not only is it so we should normalize that too like i was wrong i don't know i was wrong i'm changing changing my mind right we should normalize that 
then we should get comfortable being able to do it. But also, and this is really important, we should let other people do it too. Because I think too often when somebody changes their mind, we're quick to pounce as opposed Mm -hmm. to letting them grow and applauding that process and Mm. rewarding. That's Mm. a really good point. Yeah. I think probably most of us are are very keen to jump on someone when they admit they've done something wrong or got something wrong. Yes. That's a very bad habit. Yes. It's a humility needs to be learned, doesn't it? There's that humility. Full circle. Uh, So, um, so our other international guest who's coming to the conference is uh, Susan Gerbic. And I know that you two know each other, but have you actually sort of met in person before or will this be the first time you were together? I met her at Tycon last year ah, okay. um, and um, she was one of the people who was so wonderful to me um, leading up to Tycon and I was really happy to meet her and she really is that wonderful and I'm really excited this fall because we're going to be at Tycon together again and we're going to be in New Zealand and Australia together so I'm going to get to spend a lot of time with Susan this fall. Cool and I understand you're coming to New Zealand for a bit longer than just our conference what, what are you planning to see? Um, planning on staying forever, New Zealand immigration. Don't <laughs> um, so um, I think this time we're just going to stay on the South Island. Um, we've been there a couple of times. The first time we did the North and the South Island and thought six weeks was enough and it just was not. And the second time we had like a month and we only stayed on the North Island and it just still wasn't enough. And so now I think we're just going to stay on the South Island for the amount of time that we have. That sounds like a good plan. I think I, I certainly haven't seen enough of the South Island myself. One of my goals is, um, last time I was there, um, I really wanted to see you have a dark sky uh, park, one of the (laughs) international dark sky lounge. And I, but I guess, will that be a good time of year to go? So, uh, only Katrina was here to answer because Katrina's, um, um, Katrina's parents, her mother and stepfather, owned the um, one of the dark sky reserves, but that's up in the North Island. That's in North Island, yes. Yeah. But for the 2019 conference, we had the Skeptics Guide to the Universe people here, and we arranged a dark sky experience at Mount St. John. Um, but unfortunately, the weather was awful, and so uh, it was a cloudy sky, and uh, it, it wasn't good, and it was very, very windy. But um, hopefully being long enough in the South Island, you'll get to see some nice dark skies and get to to actually um, get that experience. I hope so. All right. It's been uh, fantastic talking to you. It's been a a fascinating conversation, and uh, we really look forward to meeting you in person in November for the conference. I am so looking forward to be there and meeting all of you in person. And thank you so much for this wonderful conversation.